What is it about our human condition that leads men to want to suppress the truth? Why did Lance Armstrong and his cycling teammates go to such lengths over 15 years to suppress the truth about their use and abuse of performance-enhancing drugs? Why did President Richard Nixon and the leading man in his White House suppress the truth? The truth about the Watergate break-in and cover-up bringing our nation to the brink of a constitutional crisis before resigning the presidency. Why was the truth about slavery in this country suppressed for so long? Why did it take a Connecticut teacher by the name of Harriet Beecher Stowe to write a book titled Uncle Tom's Cabin to move many in our nation to see the ugly truth about slavery and just begin to come to grips with Christ's command to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The book of Romans in the first chapter in verse 18 tells us that in our unrighteousness, that is in our sin, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In today's passage, starting in Acts chapter 5 verse 17, we see the Jewish leadership in their unrighteousness intensifying their efforts to suppress the truth by turning up the heat of persecution on the apostles. In chapter 4, after the healing of the lame man, the apostles Peter and John were arrested. They received a warning not to talk anymore about Jesus and were released. Now in chapter 5, all the apostles are arrested. They are threatened with death and they are beaten. This is not just a repetition of earlier stories, but is an intensification of the opposition to Christ and to the gospel. Our historian Luke is showing us that a progression is happening. First, they took on only Jesus. Then they pressured the lead apostles, and now they are challenging all the apostles. We'll see through the events of Acts 5 just whose side God is on and what he is doing through his apostles and through his church. Turn with me to chapter 5, verse 17 in your Bibles. Follow along as I read. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. This is the second account of an arrest in Acts. The first, they only arrested Peter and John. That was in response to the healing of the lame man in Acts chapter 3. And now this incident, in response to the miracles of chapter 5, verses 12 to 16, results in the arrest of all the apostles. The Sadducees were on the attack. The Sadducees were the majority party in Jerusalem. They believed in no resurrection. They believed there were no miracles. They were the religious liberals of the day. They also threw them in a public prison. Um, they want everybody to know that this is the consequences for talking about Jesus Christ. Verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. We tend to think this release from prison was an escape from danger. Well, the Lord does love to rescue his people. 
But that's not the motive and the direction here. Rather, this release from prison and their instruction from the angel to preach the gospel in the temple square puts them in a place of carrying out God's will of proclaiming the gospel, but it is a place of even greater danger than it was for them in the prison. They're going to be standing at the temple, in the temple courtyard. That's the most public place with the most people in Jerusalem each morning as many came in preparation for the morning sacrifice and prayers. And they will be doing this in the very center of the Jewish council's authority. This is in effect rubbing it in. Not only did the apostles escape from their prison, they are speaking to this people about the gospel, which the angel summarized as the life, a familiar phrase to Peter, for he had confessed to Jesus that he had the words of eternal life in John chapter 6. And then in Acts chapter 3, Peter rightly calls Jesus the author of life. You might say by following the angel's instructions, they were jumping from the frying pan and into the fire. This word continues. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. Verse 22, But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what would this come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. What would be a modern day equivalent of this? It, 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 it would be similar to an enemy of the United States government convicted and incarcerated for terrorism, having escaped from prison and then standing on the steps of the United States Capitol building and having his message of hatred of Western capitalism in our country broadcast to the world by the various news networks. Can you imagine the reaction of the president, of the Congress? They would be threatening. They would be calling them out. Our leaders would be enraged and filled with a passion to not only stop it from happening again, but there would be angry public statements letting us all know this will never happen again and the perpetrator will be punished. We've heard them before. Look at verse 26. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. In their pursuit of Jesus, the Jewish leaders were also afraid of the response from the people. That's why they captured Jesus by night in the Garden of Gethsemane. The response to the apostles' message regarding Christ is once again getting the same response that greeted our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 27. And when they brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. The high priest remembers and recalls the command they had given Peter and John as the leaders of the apostles after the healing of the lame man in Acts chapter 4. 
And he uses that command not to talk about Jesus as the basis for his interrogation and for their accountability. Notice, there is absolutely no concern, no examination, no consideration by the high priest or the Jewish council of the truthfulness of the claims about Jesus. Instead, the high priest is particularly upset that both publicly in the temple courts and privately in the meeting of the council, the apostles are placing the blame for his death squarely at the feet of the Sanhedrin, at the feet of the Jewish council itself. The high priest is not worried about who Jesus is, but he's worried about what people are going to think and say about him and what the boys in the council with him will think in the midst of this public humiliation. He's worried the apostles are turning the people against him. Peter responds in three ways, starting in verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. First, Peter's message is about obedience to God. His short but powerful message starts with it in verse 29 and ends with it in verse 32. It's exactly what Peter said in chapter 4, verse 32. He's just stated it more bluntly. We must obey God rather than men. Well, what kind of obedience is Peter talking about here? The kind of obedience Jesus talked about in John chapter 6, where someone in the crowd asked Jesus, what must we do to do the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Obedience to God starts with trusting in Christ. You want to do the works of God, Jesus says? You want to be obedient to God? Believe in Me. Obedience to God means following Jesus and believing the good news about Him. Not catering and succumbing to the wants and desires of men and this world. This is the same Peter, who in his first letter exhorts persecuted Christians to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether in the political realm, in the workplace, or in the home, both to the just and kind leaders and to the harsh ones, Jesus also called people to submit to the scribes who sit in Moses' seat, to those who are in authority in Israel, even when they are hypocritical, even when they do not do what they preach and teach. But here they are confronted with a human authority that has set itself against the express and direct command of God. There is no contradiction here. When men forbid what God has commanded or commanded what God has forbidden, we as Christians, just like the apostles, only have one option. We must obey God rather than men. When the world says we can't preach the gospel, we can't talk about what Christ has done, we have no choice as Christians. We must follow God. In no uncertain terms here, 
Peter and the apostles declare their allegiance to God in Christ regardless of the circumstances. In Peter's second point, he repeats again to the council the very message that he proclaims in obedience to God. Peter is not shy about talking to the Jewish religious and civil leaders with the gospel. He figuratively smacks them upside of the head when he draws the contrast between what God has done and what they are doing. He tells them, God raised Jesus, but they killed Jesus and killed him in a most humiliating manner by hanging him on a tree. This is a direct reference to the crucifixion. It echoes the words of Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, which required that a flagrant, a flagrant lawbreaker, when executed, be hanged on a tree. And in doing so, he would be a symbol of God's curse upon him. Here, Jesus is the one who is cursed by God, just as Moses foretold 1,400 years before Christ walked the earth. And Jesus is cursed by God because he took upon himself the penalty for the sins of all his people. Peter is telling the Jewish council, who were experts on the Jewish scriptures, experts on the Old Testament, that Jesus is the one Moses was pointing to, essentially saying to them, if you understand the scriptures, you would understand that Jesus is your Messiah, your Savior. But instead... You killed him. You killed the one your scripture said would come to deliver you. Later, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, and the apostle Paul in Galatians 3, verse 13, recall the tree as the place where Jesus bore our sins and where he became a curse in our place. The language Peter uses in verses 31 and 32 are invitations for these Jewish elders to come to their king and their Messiah for repentance and forgiveness. The word leader in verse 31 is translated as ruler or prince in other versions. It is a reference to King David and that Jesus is the descendant of David. He is the leader, the ruler of his people that will sit on the throne of Israel as their king and leader forever. He is their savior. And Peter holds out to those who killed Jesus. The forgiveness of sins that is theirs in their king and their savior. Peter tells them that God exalted Jesus so he might give to those who are his enemies repentance and give to those who oppose him forgiveness of sins. Salvation is given by God. It is a gift of God to those who are hostile to him. The situation we were in, Romans 5 tells us, as his enemies. And of course, he can save even someone whose heart is as hard as the Sadducees because his power is complete and is over all things. The great English preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, the cross can fetch waters of repentance out of stony hearts. And in this audience today, if there are some of you opposed to the gospel of Christ, let me assure you 
that God has provided for repentance and forgiveness of sins in the cross work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is able, through the Holy Spirit, to turn your unrepentant and rebellious heart into a heart that loves him so that you will willingly ask for repentance and forgiveness of sins. That authority rests in the power of our great God in heaven. And it is our desire and prayer to God that it will happen to you this day as the word of God is proclaimed. Think of it. Peter is offering to these men who crucified the Lord repentance and forgiveness of sins. That same offer has been made to us. And just as Peter called upon Israel, so we call upon you to believe in our Lord Jesus Christ, receive the free gift of everlasting life. Peter preaches repentance as a gift. To give repentance, to give faith, to give the forgiveness of sins. This is the gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we come to understand it, we know that we have nothing to boast in ourselves. But we can boast just like the apostles did in the face of persecution. The third point that Peter makes is that he and the apostles are witnesses to these things. This is a theme brought forward in each of Peter's sermons so far in Acts. And the apostles' witness is integrated, intertwined and combined with that of the Holy Spirit, whom the exalted Christ poured out on the day of Pentecost. The apostles' witness is corroborated, is empowered by the witness of God himself through the Holy Spirit. He is imploring, Peter is imploring the Sadducees, the Jewish council, to listen to this message, to hear it. And when Peter says, the Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him, he is not saying that God gives the Spirit as a reward to those who have earned it. Rather, he is saying that the gracious presence of the Spirit in a believer becomes evident. That it shines forth when we obey God. Obedience is a manifestation of the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. Obedience is appropriately called the fruit of the Spirit. We obey God not to earn His favor or to earn His rewards, but we obey God because we are Christians. It flows from our heart. Because of who we are in Jesus Christ. One hallmark of this obedience is a glad reception of the good news about Jesus. The Jewish leader's refusal indicates that they are not only disobedient to God, but that they lack the Holy Spirit. They wanted to do to Peter and the apostles what they had already done to Jesus. Look at verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. The idea here is of intense anger. Almost uncontrollable anger on their parts. They are enraged. Their first instinct is to kill this, these voices of the truth, these voices that testify to Christ. Verse 34, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up 
and gave orders to them to put the men outside for a little while. Gamaliel is a prominent rabbi of his day, greatly respected by everyone, even though he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were opposed to the Sadducees. The the Pharisees believed that there really was a resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees really believed that there were miracles. And Gamaliel was the teacher of the Apostle Paul, according to Acts 22. Matter of fact, some wonder how Luke knew what was spoken inside of this room after the apostles were put out. Some speculate Paul might have been in the room, or Paul was talking to Gamaliel about these events later. Well, I think God has a magnificent sense of humor in the midst of this intensely serious situation. Before the Jewish council dominated by the Sadducees, the party that does not believe in angels or miracles or the resurrection from the dead, God uses an angel to miraculously get the apostles out of prison. And then he uses this theologically conservative Pharisee who believes in resurrection and miracles to get the apostles not only out of prison, but out of the death sentence that the Sadducees want to impose upon them. It's ironic, isn't it? God uses the very things that you would expect to cause problems to deliver his people. His sovereignty is so magnificent. Let's see what Gamaliel said in verse 35. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. Both of these men were evidently rebels. We know only that Luke tells us here in Acts 5 about Judas. We don't know much else about him. But Judas the Galilean is well known in history, even outside the Bible. After the death of Herod the Great in 4 BC, Judas led a revolt against the Romans over, guess what, taxes, recurring theme, both in the Bible and history, taxes. Verse 38, Gamaliel continues. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Well, Gamaliel's influence got the Sadducees to back off a bit. They adopted a wait-and-see attitude. Really, they compromised and they took kind of a middle ground. On the one hand, they could have let them go with no more than a lecture, a a slap on the wrist, if you will, like they had done in Acts chapter 4. Or on the other extreme, they could have given in to their first instinct, which is to push hard and try to influence the Romans to execute them. Instead, they decided to only beat them. The severity of the beating is not detailed. In our minds, we might minimize it because the text of Scripture is so brief. But it was very common in this day, those days to 
have a beating consist of 40 lashes minus one. That was the prescription for beatings in Deuteronomy 20, Deuteronomy chapter 25. You can be sure whatever the beating was, it was severe enough to make the point. Stop witnessing about Jesus or else we will kill you. I think the mention of the beating is so brief because the main point of what the apostles just experienced is seen in verses 41 and 42. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus, that the Messiah is Jesus. What was the effect of the persecution on these apostles? They went away rejoicing. Really, they'd just been beaten. And they went away rejoicing. They are not bitter. They are not discouraged. They are not depressed. Rather, they felt honored. They felt privileged to be counted worthy by the sovereign God and their Lord Jesus Christ to be chosen to be Look at the language at the end of verse 41. To be dishonored for the name of Jesus. To be humiliated for the name of Jesus. By hanging on a tree just as Jesus had been humiliated. So they were counted worthy by God to be imprisoned and beaten for the name of Jesus. They put it in a really wonderful way, don't they? That they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name? How can it be that we Christians, I'm speaking of all of us, even here at Omaha Bible Church, how can it possibly be that in the presence even of our friends, we often do not have the courage to give a testimony for Jesus? Here are the apostles with their lives on the line before the authorities of their world, standing boldly for our Lord and rejoicing that they are able to enter prison for His sake. And yet, we, and I am just as guilty as you, cannot bring ourselves to tell our next-door neighbor that we are committed to Christ and ask them to consider Him too. You know, this great principle that we ought to obey God rather than men pertains to us in many of the principles and many of the experiences of life. You'll notice that they obeyed even if that meant going to prison. In other words, we are responsible to obey no matter the consequences, even if it means death, as we will soon see in Acts chapter 7. Even then, we are called to obey the Word of God. These witnesses went to prison, and when they came out, they started preaching immediately. Notice where they preached. They went right back to the temple area and preached again. And they went from house to house to house and preached to their friends and their neighbors. Remember, they were commissioned by Jesus in Acts, 1 to, in Acts chapter 1 to be his witnesses, to carry the message of Jesus to the city. They did not cease from teaching and preaching that the Messiah, the Savior, is Jesus. And what was the result? Look at the first 
sentence of chapter of chapter six, verse one. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Huh. Strange follow up, isn't it? You would think after they just come through this tremendous, tremendous persecution. Released from prison. That there'd be great rejoicing that the whole church would be just ecstatic over what was happening. But Luke is pretty honest with us, isn't he? Yeah, he's pretty honest. There's a dispute. There's a problem going on in the church. You see, the Hellenists are Jews from various countries around the Mediterranean Sea. They come from all corners of the Roman Empire. These Jews were scattered to foreign lands at the hands of various dominant empires in the ancient world. Likely, many were converts from the day of Pentecost. Many of them would have spoken the common language of the Eastern Roman Empire, the language of Koine Greek, of common Greek. The Jews who still lived in the promised land of Israel likely would have spoken Aramaic as their native language. So we not only have a language difference between these two groups, we also have cultural differences. We have Jews living predominantly among Gentiles and Gentile nations in one group. And in the other group, we have Jews that live in Jerusalem or nearby towns who live in a highly structured Jewish environment with religious rules being worn on everyone's shirt sleeves. Even now, today, when you go to Israel, you see the Orthodox Jews, we call them the black hats around. You know who they are. Everything shuts down on Friday night and all day Saturday. So too, these Jews lived in a Jewish world. So you have a real distinction being drawn here. We have language differences. We have cultural differences. The dispute boiled down to this. The Hellenistic Jews... The Greek-speaking Jews felt their widows were being slighted in the daily distribution of food and goods. Now, widows are the most vulnerable in the society in this time. If the widows aren't taken care of, they will starve. There is no, there is no social safety net, all right? And so the Hellenistic Jews are upset. They are upset. And discrimination, whether real or perceived, can have a corrosive effect on human relationships. What is clear is the situation needs resolved. More conflict within the church is not needed. The last attack from within the church, Ananias and Sapphira, resulted in death. You can imagine this had the apostles' attention. So a division along cultural lines with a language barrier thrown in, it's a formula for big trouble down the road. This combined with the external attacks on the church, the persecution after the healing of the blind man, now the beatings associated with preaching the gospel once again, leaves no doubt that Satan is attacking the church. The attacks are coming just as the Lord Jesus said they would. Troubles would come upon his church. The problem, however, would be dealt with by the apostles and handled quickly and expeditiously. God always gives grace in the midst of trial. The apostles decide now is the time for a meeting designed to resolve the issue. Verse 2. 
And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. The apostles understood. They were called to preach the word and to pray. That was their mission and the gift the Lord had prepared for the apostles and given to them. For them to spend their time serving tables would have been a a productive thing to do, but it was not the best use of their gifts. So in order for those with the gift of serving to be able to use their gift for the best progress of the church, and in order for the apostles to use their gift to the best advantage, they came up with a plan. Verse 3. Therefore, brothers... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, and a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Seven men are chosen. They are chosen to serve. Only two of them will have their names brought up again in the Scriptures. Interestingly, they all have Greek names. They are probably all Hellenistic Jews called to meet the needs of their widows. The first is Stephen. The second mentioned is Philip. Some think these men are the first deacons. And while they are doing very deacon-like things, It's more likely at this early stage of the church that they are simply called to serve in order to meet the particular need and problem in the church at this time. In fact, two of these men will very shortly be called upon to witness to Christ in very powerful ways as they play key roles in the advancement of the gospel in the world. That brings us to verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, once again, Luke points us to the results of all this. The result of the persecution, the arrests, and the beatings is what? The word of God continued to increase. Interesting, isn't it, that even many of the priests now come to believe in Jesus Like Peter and the apostles, we are witnesses in our own society to our own friends, neighbors, and families. We are not only speakers of the message of the good news about Jesus, but we are also called to obey God, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Our message and our changed lives witness to the truth of God. And the church is powerful when it produces witnesses. The testimony of its people through the power of the Spirit is the secret of the church's growth and endurance. The power rests with God. The apostles are witnesses, and we are witnesses, and so is also the Holy Spirit sent by Christ. The Holy Spirit is the power behind our witness and the message of the gospel to those who believe and of our obedience to God. The Holy Spirit cannot be obtained by going to university, by going to a seminary. The Holy Spirit cannot be obtained by doing religious works or, or even by water baptism. We can't even obtain the Holy Spirit by giving our money to the church. Only the grace of God through the Spirit of God 
gives repentance and forgiveness of sins. He gives salvation to all those who call upon Jesus' name. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit indwells us as believers. May God help us to take the apostles as an example for us as Christians. May God give us spiritual backbone to be witnesses to. In our experience, suffering and dishonor for his name may include such things as condescending insults or being treated like a social outcast, perhaps discrimination at school or work or maybe a little worse. And when that happens, do we rejoice in the honor and take the perspective that God is in control even in this situation and that he has given me the honor and privilege of representing him before the world in the place he has put me? That God counts me worthy to represent him in whatever place he puts me is a blessing we should cherish. That should get us excited. Resting not on our own strength and our own good works, but solely upon the gift of the grace of God alone in Christ alone and the enabling of God and his Holy Spirit. In our own strength, we will always fail. But thanks be to God, we have a great Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, and we can do all things through him who strengthens us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for these exhortations from your word that we need to hear. For so often, we've been cowards as representatives of our Lord. We've been like Peter, who in his weakness denied the Lord three times. Oh God, save us from such sin. Give us boldness and courage through your spirit. Lord, if there are some here today who have never believed in Christ, Give them repentance and forgiveness of sins today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.